This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 17th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Joe Biden wants the U.S. to stop support for the Saudis' war in Yemen. Representative Ro Khanna of California says that's great, but the details matter. We spoke about the Biden administration on foreign policy, the U.S. exit from Afghanistan, and the U.S. COVID response last week. The president seems to be, uh, at least with uh, language, um, confusing me just a little bit. He says he wants to end the Saudi-led war in Yemen. Um, Presumably, he means withdraw the United States from involvement in that war. Um, What have you asked him to do beyond making that pledge to end U.S. involvement there? Well, Caleb, I appreciate the clarification because uh, the United States uh, uh, can't end the civil war. I mean, we can support Martin Griffiths uh, in uh, trying to bring it to an end, but we can at least uh, eliminate our involvement and take constructive steps uh, to reduce the extraordinary suffering. Uh, The president took a constructive step in stopping our support of the offensive Saudi bombing in Yemen. Uh, But the blockade continues, and the blockade is U.S.-backed. We need to make it very clear that the Saudis need to stop uh, the blockade that's causing starvation of children. I mean, they're not allowing food and they're not allowing medicine. The second thing we have to do is make sure that the Saudis are not funding, uh, or frankly, that Iran is not funding uh, internal parties in Yemen. Make it a civil war. Don't have the Saudis, UAE, or Iran uh, funding the parties. Uh, because until that funding dries up, the, the war will continue. So those are two things that I have called on uh, President Biden to do. Uh, the uh, envoy in Yemen, um, Tim Lender King, has said that boats are currently off the port of Hodeida. Uh, and a reporter uh, that referenced here by Jake Tapper, Nima Elbagir, said uh, that's not true. It's shocking he would say that. It, it is not true from everything we have been told and understand. Uh, he or Secretary of State Blinken needs to correct the record. They need to acknowledge that there is a blockade. This is not a game. There are people dying because of these decisions. There are kids who are dying because of these decisions. And it is either utterly ignorant for the envoy to say that, uh, or it's a blatant distortion. And I, he needs to correct that today. Acknowledge the blockade. CNN has done a huge report on that, uh, which everyone should watch. Uh, and uh, articulate what they're going to do to to fix the situation. Uh, What do you make of the claim laid out in Politico recently that President Biden wants to or is reprioritizing the Middle East? Well, it depends what that means. I mean, it it shouldn't mean sending more troops there. I mean, what we need to be doing is thinking, how would we get our troops out? Look, I am not someone who doesn't believe in the use of force. I was for the initial strikes in Al-Qaeda. I supported President Obama in 2014 going to make sure ISIS did not uh, create a caliphate. But we should have gotten out, started getting out in 2018 when the job was done. And we need to uh, empower local regional actors uh, to have counterterrorism operations against ISIS. Uh, having our troops there, sending more troops to Saudi Arabia is just making them a sitting target. And it's not what the American people want. Yeah, my, my fear was that in reprioritizing the Middle East, that it might just mean that we let the Pentagon take a larger role in setting Middle East policy. Well, and, and the question for the, the Pentagon is, is, is what is going to be effective policy? If you want to safeguard our troops, if you care about the safety of our troops, the biggest way to safeguard those troops is to start bringing them home. You can't have them sitting in, in, in Iraq uh, taking ongoing 
uh, of fire from Iranian militias. And then we're in this awful situation where we get hit and we feel understandably compelled to respond. And it uh, perpetuates a cycle of, of, of violence, putting our troops at risk. Now, they did a tremendous job, our troops, in defeating ISIS, which had to be done, in my view. We couldn't allow ISIS to have territorial control and become a caliphate. But that job was done in 2018. Why are we still there? And what is the plan of getting us out? Uh, I spoke recently with uh, Will Ruger, uh, who you may know. He was President Trump's nominee to be ambassador to uh, Afghanistan. And uh, I, I have a lot of respect for Will. I, I, and, and as you know, I supported uh, President uh, Trump at calling for the withdrawal of if, if troops in Afghanistan. So uh, with respect to President Biden's position now, um, he appears to have an opportunity to follow the timeline that has been set out for a withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, what do you think the risks are if he doesn't do that? Well, the risk is more violence. The, the risk is more loss of American lives and civilian lives. People often say, well, what about the women and the children in Afghanistan? And I think they should listen to some of the groups in Afghanistan who are saying that currently the conflict, the violence is costing lives of women and children. The way that we uh, mitigate civilian casualty is to end that awful war, bring our troops home. They've been there for over 20 years. I mean, did anyone think when President Bush sent us uh, into Afghanistan that we would in 2021 be talking about still being in Afghanistan at a cost of $50 billion a year to the American taxpayer, uh, we need to bring our troops home. And we have to uh, recognize that Taliban controlled 70% of the territory. The, the, the idea that we're going to have a Taliban-free future in Afghanistan is utterly naive. If President Biden does not go by the timeline that was uh, set up by the Trump administration, does he own the war in Afghanistan? I think every president comes in and is responsible uh, for. Right, but 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 as a as a practical political matter, it would seem that following that timeline, even if there is some uh, significant cost uh, in following that timeline, as as you might expect, withdrawing from a war. Um, but if he goes beyond that point of uh, the timeline that's been set out, do you think that he owns it politically? I think he should follow the timeline. Now, if we're talking about a month or two months or three months and he has a view of, OK, we want to do it by the end of August to do it properly. And if he and, and, and that, that there's some flexibility, I don't think he has to follow it to the to, to the the, the uh, letter of what Trump set out. But if we're come fall uh, still talking about being in Afghanistan, uh, I think he's going to have uh, a bipartisan criticism from Congress, which wants our, our troops out. Most of the people in Congress, I think, want our troops out. So yes, I think at that point, if there's no alternative, I mean, if he says, look, I have a different approach, I want to withdraw and I, give me till the fall, I think that people will be will listen. But if it's indefinite, then yes, he, he will be a responsible. Has the struggle to re-enter the JCPOA, the so-called Iran nuclear deal, has that surprised you at all? Yes. I don't understand what we're waiting for. How could, how could it have been simpler? We could have gotten back in. We could have said like, that we're going to take away some of Trump's sanctions and we're going to snap them back. The, the, the point is this. It's, it's, if, if we're concerned, let's just look at Trump's maximum pressure campaign with the facts. Iran had 102 kilograms of, of enriched uranium. Today they have 2.5 tons of enriched uranium, 25 times more than when Trump took office. 
So the sanctions obviously haven't worked and they're racing to building the nuclear bomb. If you care about a non-nuclear Iran, you would want a chair to get in. Now, they could say, well, you're naive. We're going to get in. We're going to reduce these sanctions that Trump put in and then Iran is going to cheat. And then I said, "Okay, then put the sanctions back on, but at least give it a chance. What do you have to lose? You could snap the sanctions back on uh, in uh, a matter of days. But uh, so instead of playing a game of chicken, we ought to be very clear that we're willing to have some reduction in the Trump sanctions, but we reserve the right to snap them back on. And we could even snap them on with more severity if there's continued cheating. So I don't understand why we 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 aren't giving that approach a chance. Democrats hold a small majority in the U.S. House and the smallest possible majority in the U.S. Senate. Who are the best friends of ending endless wars on the other side of the aisle? You know, honestly, Matt Gates. Uh, I know uh, every time I uh, mention him positively, I get about a hundred tweets negatively on my on my account. But he's he's been uh, very strong on Yemen. He was strong on not getting into war in, uh, in Iran, uh, in, in not building up an even greater troop presence uh, overseas. Uh, Rand Paul ha- has been strong. Uh, there are people in the Freedom Caucus, Andy Briggs, we disagree on a lot, but Andy Briggs has been strong on uh, issues of North Korea, trying to resolve that situation. So this is not a issue just of the progressive left. There is a sense in this country that we're overextended, that that was never our founding intent. Uh, you know, I mean, I know there's all this talk about the, the the British monarchy these days, and I guess maybe being of Indian origin, I take it personally, you know, given the British Empire. Uh, but, you know, America was never an empire. That's our fundamental uh, greatness, that, that, that unlike Rome, unlike Britain, we never had this desire uh, to colonize the world. We never had this desire to project force all over the world. So why uh, we are in these endless wars, it's, it's contrary to who we are as a people. You voted for impeachment of the now former president on January 13th when he was still in office. Uh, for his behavior leading up to and on January 6th. The Senate was 10 votes shy of conviction. I believe that Republicans broadly don't have much of an appetite for uh, understanding, uh, much less vocalizing uh, exactly what happened on that day. Uh, is that What does that mean for them, do you think? I just wonder where conservatism has gone. Because if you consider yourself a conservative in, a, in, in the tradition of Edmund Burke, then what is uh, sacred for a, a nation? It's our traditions and our institutions. And one can think of no nothing more sacred than the United States Capitol. I know there were some cons- commentator, conservative commentators saying, why is the left always invoking religious imagery to speak about the Capitol? Well, they should read Lincoln, because Lincoln called uh, these our national religion uh, and, and the symbols, the temples of democracy. And so the attack on the Capitol, it wasn't an attack on members of Congress. It wasn't an attack on a, on a party. It was an attack on uh, our national way of life, on, on, on everything. I mean, you grow up idolizing most people, the, the Capitol and American democracy. And it's been uh, sad to me to, to see that there hasn't been more Republican voices saying uh, the Capitol building and the American democracy is the greatest tribute to 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 America to democracy in the history of the world. 
We should be so proud of this building. That is a building of American exceptionalism. And anyone who attacks it uh, or contributes to the attack of it should uh, have uh, be held accountable. Um, you're on record opposing new domestic terrorism laws to deal with the groups that attacked the Capitol and, of course, groups sympathetic to them. Canada recently declared the Proud Boys uh, to be a domestic terror group. What are your concerns about the U.S. potentially expanding uh, lists of groups and then, uh, you know, tagging those people as domestic terrorists? Because I saw how the Patriot Act was abused after 9-11 and how ordinary Americans uh, were uh, subject to surveillance, were subject to profiling. And just like I wouldn't want uh, a Pakistani American uh, subject to uh, being profiled uh, if they were good citizens, I, I wouldn't want a, uh, a, 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 a Trump supporter who is law abiding uh, be subject to profiling or surveillance uh, because of who they are. Uh, I think that we have plenty of tools available to go after uh, those who actually uh, commit these crimes. One of the things I would say to law enforcement is just get a young, bunch of young people to follow Parler, Instagram, Facebook more, and you probably won't need all these other tools. You just need some people, folks who are, who are a little bit more tech savvy, and uh, you can probably track a lot of uh, what, you're, what you need. Uh, changing gears just a little bit, um, federal public health agencies last year failed pretty substantially to deal with the coronavirus pandemic as it uh, ramped up in the U.S. just right out a year ago. Um, the CDC failed to develop a COVID test when it would have been most useful. The FDA has been slow to approve at-home tests uh, va and vaccines that have, been, have shown to be effective uh, and safe are still awaiting approval. Uh, I think a reasonable person would ask, if not for an event like this, why do you have a public health community? Well, we've underinvested, first of all, in the public health community. I mean, NIH has a program, $100 million, uh, that would have a universal diagnostic test for vaccines or universal uh, vaccine therapies. Uh, why we don't have more investment, that's you know a fraction point less than 0.1% of the defense budget why we aren't funding that and was funding, funding really the roadblock to the these developments of, of a lot of these products i think funding was the it has been a roadblock in terms of development of uh, universal vaccine uh, therapies and universal vaccine testing especially because we didn't think after sars that uh, that, that kind of investment was needed but to your point that there have been uh, regulatory roadblocks as well. Uh, I'm open to looking at uh, how we can ensure safety, but uh, streamline uh, a regulatory process in cases of emergency uh, that protect safety, but are allow us to to act. And 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 if uh, there is a commission that wants to look at that and see if there are recommendations, I mean, I would follow where the where the data takes us. Where do we stand on repealing uh, the AUMFs that we uh, had were that were passed now twenty years ago? Uh, I'm for it, but a lot of members are for it. The question always becomes, what do you have in its place? And the problem is that that's where the disagreement always comes. I would say, why don't we have a limited uh, AUMF in its place and 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 ask the president to come? Here's what I've never understood. If the president really has a case for attack and force, I don't think it, Congress is going to be 
the obstacle. So if President Biden had to be forced to come to the Congress to say the Iranian militia has hit our troops, I, I want authorization for a limited strike back, and we can debate the merits of it. And uh, there are reasons uh, uh, pr- probably not to escalate. But I'll tell you what, I think Congress actually would approve that. I'm not saying how I would have voted. So the question, the point is, if you show me examples of the president coming for authorization to Congress, where Congress is not approving the authorizations and that this is having repeatedly, then maybe I would say, okay, uh, you know, we have a challenge. My view is we haven't even tried it. And I, I, for the life of me, don't understand why presidents don't just come to Congress for authorization when more often than not, they probably receive that authorization. What's wrong? What's wrong with a clean repeal? I, I would support a clean repeal and then having the president come uh, for authorization. The question is, then, how do you, you know, I mean, you can't have immediate withdrawal from Iraq of all our, our, our troops. I mean, so I think you would need some uh, I- exception. And I'm for withdrawing those troops. But I guess the question would be, how do you not just trigger immediate withdrawal from these areas? Uh, so you would phase it out or set a date in the future and say this is when these expire? I would be for that. I, I don't think you would get majority Congress of Congress on board with that. I mean, you would get my vote. You may get uh, Barbara Lee's vote. You may get progressives and, and some of the Freedom Caucus. But we have to craft something that gets the majority of Congress. And, uh, and you know, and, and that's where the debate is. But I, I think having a sunset uh, after a few years and, and having something, I'd be willing to even vote for something broader than what I want as compromise, at least to get these old AUMFs off the books. Ro Khanna is a Democrat representing California's 17th Congressional District. We spoke last week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.